Everybody can stand and join me, thanks. Okay, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and puts it into practice. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the Lord of the wind and the waves, that you calm the raging seas. And Lord, in our world, there is much raging and turmoil and conflict. And we need your voice to loudly rebuke the chaos and bring calm. Lord, over Israel and Palestine, over the Ukraine and Russia, over China and Taiwan, over North Korea, South Korea, over warring factions in Africa, in the chaos in Haiti, in the chaos in the United States, in Canada, and around the world. Humanity is in chaos, and there is only one voice that can calm the raging sea. So, Lord, we ask you to speak. Help us to put off doubt that your way is best. For when chaos is met with chaos and violence begets violence, we continue to uncreate our world and work at odds with your purposes. So Lord, speak peace. In our world, in our hearts, in our souls, in our emotions, speak your peace. Lord, thank you that we can have a living, active, vibrant relationship with you. You are not the God who just put the world together, set up the rules, and then stands back and watches. You are the God who comes into our world and speaks and acts and does. And so, Lord, this morning, as we consider your word and as we consider your power, May our ears hear and our hearts resound with confidence in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Ah, there's three up here. Okay. <laughs> it's like... So this morning, as we're looking at this text of Scripture and everything I just prayed really kind of is, <laughs> is the conclusion. There you go. So you can kind of tune out if that was all you needed to hear this morning. <clears throat> but I want us to think about addressing doubts. Because in this, in the, this whole gospel of Luke is about addressing doubt, right? Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he says, Theophilus, I'm writing these, these words to you, and, and I've done my homework, and I've done the research so that you'd know for certain, you'd know for certain the things that you've been taught about Jesus Christ. That you would just, just know that this is the truth about who Jesus is. And, and along the way, there's all sorts of doubts about who Jesus is, right? Like even here, the disciples are going, who is this? <laughs> who are we really with? Because they're in a moment of shock. Jesus has just done something that, that just blew their minds, right? I mean, just imagine this scene. <laughs> just imagine this. You're in a boat. You're a professional fisherman. You're a professional sailor. Where's, where's Barry? Barry's back there. <laughs> you know, works on tugboats. Imagine just you're, you're th this is your life. This is what you do. And you're trying to get across this lake and this squall comes up and it's a violent storm and the boat is being swamped and you're doing everything you know how to do to survive this moment and the funny part is Jesus is sleeping because um, the storm doesn't bother him so much. Imagine that. Like, think, think about the chaos in our world. I don't think God's like up there going, oh, geez, they're doing it again. I can't believe it. But he's not sleeping. You know, the, God doesn't sleep, nor does he slumber. His care for us is never ending. And uh, Jesus tells us in John's gospel, my father is at work to this very day, and so am I. But here is Jesus Sleeping, kind of reminiscent of Jonah. Read that too, in the middle of a storm, he's sleeping. Different reason, he's running from God. Jesus is sleeping because he is God. Um, and the storm doesn't bother him. And then they wake him up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and it's suddenly calm ocean. Wouldn't that just... Wouldn't that just... <laughs> even though you've seen what Jesus can do, and just think about what these disciples have already seen. The paralytic let down through the, through, the, through the roof. Sins forgiven and walks again. The leper touched and cleansed and healed. And, and, and over and over they've been seeing Jesus working and doing amazing things. Now they're sitting here going, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You know, and we can, we can get into all sorts of, you know, you go back into the Old Testament and you've got the, the Spirit of God hovering over in the first few verses, hovering over the, the watery emptiness and chaos and then speaking order and life out of this watery, empty chaos. You've got God who speaks and acts 
and, and not separating water from water this way, but this way in Exodus 15. And dry ground appears and the people walk through in safety. And you've got over and over in the, in the Psalms this, this, uh, this continual poetic cry that God speaks over the storm. The voice of God thunders. The voice of God breaks the cedars. The voice of God stills the storms. And so these guys with all that Old Testament background are going, oh my goodness, who is this? Whose voice have we just heard? Because we think we're just following human Messiah. But this guy's just done something that in all of our biblical knowledge, only God can speak to the wind and the waves and bring calm. And more and more we'll see this kind of growing, gnawing, questioning through Luke's gospel. As, as Luke is painting this picture of Jesus is not just a political hero, a military hero that will save us from our enemies. He is something much, much more. In this chapter, Luke is, is showing us four miracles. The calming of the storm. And over the next few weeks, we'll look at the demoniac who, who's, who Jesus frees. And people respond with fear, go away from us. And then the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and then the death of a 12-year-old daughter in the last two, kind of in a combined story. But, but Luke here is, has, has told these stories together to show us the power and the identity of Jesus, even though it is blowing the disciples' minds. And it should cause us to go, wow, what is going on here? And Luke is addressing doubts, and I think in our day and age too, we need to address doubts as to the presence and the power and the activity of God in our world and in our lives because a lot of people doubt that that's even possible or real anymore, right? At the root of the discussion on miracles are various worldview commitments. How we read these accounts depends largely on some prior philosophical discussions to these questions. What is a miracle? But underneath that is this, is this question, does God exist? And if so, how involved is he in our present world? So we'll get a little bit philosophical here for a bit. How many of you have heard of the Jefferson Bible? <laughs> One person. Thomas Jefferson, founding father of the United States of America, was a, what is called a deist. Now, a deist believes that there is a creator, that he created the universe, and now he just does this and watches, and that's it. So what Thomas Jefferson did with the Gospels is he said, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but that was it. So he got his scissors and his glue stick out, and he started cutting out all of the miracles, throwing those in the trash and just leaving what Jesus said that wasn't miraculous, and what he did that had no indication of supernaturalness. This all comes out of the Enlightenment, the, started in the 1700s, 1800s, where basically more and more people were believing that science has the answers to everything, 
that we can figure this all out, that even if we do have a creator, that we live in a closed system of cause and effect, therefore miracles are not possible, therefore God is simply the absent watchmaker. And most of the founding fathers of the United States were that. God exists, but he really doesn't have anything to do with us. Now they also believed in things like separation of church and state, individual rights and freedoms, uh, democracy and all these other things. We now believe that that's just normal and Christian, (laughs) but they believed that because they didn't want God to really be involved much other than a good moral teacher. They didn't want him involved. Now, that, of course, developed more into atheism where there's no God, no miracles, a closed system of cause and effect, there's no watchmaker. So, atheist, deist, And then we get what is kind of traditional biblical Christianity, that God is our creator and sustainer. That we live in an open system in which God participates in his sovereignty and in his providence. That he is involved in every detail in our world and he can speak into it anytime he wants. In any way. Of course, there's a lot of skepticism when it comes to miracles and and even within the evangelical church over the years, various explanations have been made as, you know, modern science says, well, you know, this, this kid who was demon-possessed, he fell over and he'd have seizures and he foam in his mouth. Well, that's obviously just an epileptic seizure. So Jesus just kind of, well, you know, it wasn't really demonic. It wasn't spiritual. It was physical. And we come up with all of these explanations for how it went differently. But you know, none of this really gets to the heart of the skepticism that infects our world today. The real question is that if God exists and he is sovereign and he is good, then why is the world the way it is? Why all the evil and the pain and suffering? And that's a big enough, too big a question for any one message to answer. When we get right down to it, it is emotionally in our hearts easier to go with deism that God's kind of absent, doesn't really get involved too much. Because there's a lot less tension and a lot less disappointment when we go that direction. So, miracles. What's going on in this story, in the next stories, in the life of Jesus, who from the get-go is a story of God's active involvement in our world? Let's address the question of miracles a bit. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology says, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. A less common kind of God's activity that that God is always involved in our day-to-day life. In him we live and move and have our being. God's active And Colossians tells us that he upholds the whole universe by the power of his word. He's always active, but the miracle is a less common activity. Millard Erickson in his systematic theology says a special, miracles is a special supernatural work of God in his providence that is not explicable on the basis of the usual patterns of nature. Not many of us could get up 
in a tossing, turning, stormy boat and say, peace, be still, <laughs> and at work. But Jesus is pointing to himself. This is a question of the identity of Jesus. But we live in a world now and we live in, in, in a time that where, where miracles and the supernatural is held very skeptically. Oh, there may be supernatural powers out there and we try to, you know, different religions, how do we manipulate them? How do we get them to work in our favor? Unfortunately, that affects the church too. How do we just pray the right prayer, do the right thing so that God comes through with us in the way that we want? That's kind of real paganism. Uh, and, and it affects us too and we got to watch out for that because God is sovereign. He'll, he, he does his job better than we can suggest to him. So, uh, but he does call us to pray and there's, you know, and ah, that's a mind bender, right? Like he calls us to pray, he calls us to intercede, he calls us to, to pour our hearts out before him for, for the things that are troubling us in our lives and yet he is sovereign and he knows the beginning from the end. He is outside of creation and yet he speaks into it and he wants relationship with us in the midst of it. But there's a key question the disciples are going to have to answer. And it's a question that we all have to answer at some point. Is this question at the end of this passage, who then is this? Who is Jesus? Barton Preeb in his book, um, The Problem of Christianity, six un. un Six Enduring Questions About the Christian Faith has a, a section on miracles and the, the, the science versus faith. And he says, really in our culture, we live in a culture where there are four key biases. A bias against the supernatural, a bias towards scientism, which is actually different than science, scientism, a bias against ancient peoples, and ultimately a bias against God. And so those four things really kind of in a, in a nutshell, bias against the supernatural. We live in a culture now where we, we don't really pay much attention or we don't believe that there is a spiritual world that affects our daily lives. There's, there's a bias against that because there's a bias towards scientism. And scientism isn't just uh, people doing science, answering questions, uh, pursuing evidence, uh, reframing things, uh, you know, doing what science does, which is actually quite limited in the conclusions it could make. But scientism is the belief that science can and will answer every question we could ever put to it. And that we can, we basically, it's a new religion. Scientism says that science will even answer our purpose in life. But honest scientists go, that's like off limits. <laughs> you can't scientifically come down to a, what is love. Right? I mean, oh, sure, scientists can go, well, there's this brain chemical that happens and it goes this way and it creates these pathways and da-da-da-da-da. And they can do all this brain chemistry stuff about relationship and love and and how, uh, you know, even physical intimacy uh, wires your brain for monogamy and stuff like that. And we'll get into that in another, another session. But scientism says that we can get away from having any answer come from a supernatural area and it can direct everything. And our culture now has a bias towards that. 
There's also the bias against ancient people. We kind of arrogantly think that today we've got the answers, that we have come to the pinnacle of human flourishing and that ancient people didn't know anything. And so they just, they, what they saw was, was beyond what they could understand. So they attributed it to spirits and, the, and God and things like that. But really, um, they were just dumb. They didn't know anything. You know, without our modern science, they were stupid. Well, there's an Egyptian mathematician, I think a couple hundred years before Christ, who uh, theorized the existence of the North American continent um, through, I don't know how they did this, uh, estimated the distance to the moon and the distance to the sun and was only a few thousand kilometers out. And like, they were pretty brilliant. <laughs> Just take a look at the pyramids sometime, right? Like there's amazing things that ancient people have done. But we have this bias that they were uneducated, illiterate, and not as enlightened as we are. And then ultimately there's a bias against God because honestly, a lot of what people want is freedom from God's morality. I remember reading once a... Um, uh, one scientist saying, I, I, I believe in the theory of evolution simply because I, the only other logical explanation is a creator God, and if I admit that there's a creator God, then I have to listen to what he said about how I'm supposed to live, and I don't want to do that. So it's just, you know, and, and I think uh, even Aldous Huxley, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, basically said, we want to believe that we're just an, an animalistic machine because it frees us from the morality and the sexual boundaries that God imposes on us. We just want to have free reign to do what we want to do. And the Enlightenment pushed that idea too. That's individual rights and freedoms. And so we've got these biases against the supernatural toward scientism, against ancient people, and even against God. And we can see that in our culture, and we can see that in other people, I kind of preach into the choir here on some of this, but how might this be evident in running in the background of the programming that our culture has installed into our operating systems for how we do church? Well, if we do the right program, we'll get the right result. If we follow the moralistic, legalistic approach to following Jesus, then we get into heaven, and we're, as long as we're good people, it's all good. It also leads to apathy and prayer, that, you know, God isn't active really anymore. We're on our own. See, the key question the disciples are having to face in this moment when they experience Jesus' power is, who is this? And at this point, we have a choice. We either take the Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson approach and we just cut this out of our Bibles and throw it away, or we go with the gospel authors and say, Jesus is a man of immense power. And his word changes reality. Miracles force us to question and investigate God's character and identity. See, Christianity stands or falls on the reality or the fantasy of miracles the greatest being the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 15. 
If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then no one's raised from the dead. Your faith is useless and you're still dead in your sins. Without the resurrection, without the person of Jesus Christ, God among us, we are doomed. Miracles are not just a nice addition for if and when they happen. They're actually a necessary foundation to the person and identity of God because God is an active voice in our world. And when we come to that realization, we are confronted then with our relationship with this God who speaks and acts. And as Barton Preeb says in his book, this is terrifying to us because it would mean that we're not alone in the universe. Moreover, if we're not alone and if God himself has invaded our space, then we must reevaluate everything in the light of who this God is and anything this God might require of us. And that is unnerving to us. Right? If God really acts and speaks and is mighty in power, that he is omnipotent and that he never changes, then we have to come to terms with this God wants to speak to us through his word and through his spirit and through his people and in prayer, and he wants to act. And he will act in our world. But this unnerves, I think, even followers of Jesus today, especially in, Western, in the Western world. I want to think about a couple personal and even corporate applications of what happens when we deny or downplay the miraculous power of God for his people. And then the inverse. First, if we downplay or deny the miraculous, we increase the pressure on ourselves to perform for God, to experience growth and impact and effectiveness as a church becomes completely our responsibility. And that leads us either to pride and arrogance when it works or shaming and blaming when it doesn't. We then worship at the altar of pragmatism and work becomes greater than worship. You know, just think of it this way. When the team is winning and the Stanley Cup is in view and everything is going well, is the coach a hero or a villain? Hero. He's going to get his, you know, he's going to get a raise and his, his, you know, his contract's going to the next season. What about if the team does horribly that year and they don't even make the playoffs? Coach gets fired. And sometimes that's the pressure we put on leadership in the church. We put on ourselves as followers of Jesus. That, you know, if things are going really well, and, you know, there's butts in the seat and there's bucks in the bucket, then, you know, woo, we're doing everything right, and God's happy, and we're happy, and everything's going well. But we have to keep it up. <laughs> right? And next week's got to be better than this week. And the next message has got to be just a little bit better than the last message. And the worship team's got to be just a little tighter than last week. And, and we can put so much pressure on working for God that we forget to worship him for who he is.
When we downplay the miraculous, we're downplaying God's call. We're downplaying the fact that Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. And work becomes greater than worship. Second thing is that we can settle for a mundane, non-transformative walk with Jesus where we can rest in the status quo and anticipate no change in my life. Because God's distant, he's not involved. Life just is what it is. And we live out of duty rather than delight. We start living out of duty rather than delight. And then, thirdly, spiritual formation becomes about securing a good life now rather than a vibrant, dynamic relationship with God. And uniformity becomes greater than unity in the church. We're moralistic and therapeutic, where if we just do the right things in the right order, we'll get the right outcome. We, work, we look for assured, predictable outcomes to make sure that mystery and surprise and the unexpected don't happen. And we want uniform behavior from everyone. And the focus becomes on behavior modification through education rather than the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. When we downplay the miraculous, that's where it can lead us as followers of Jesus. But when we're open to God, acting today, then the opposites become possibilities. Where our worship and our delight and our unity amidst our diversity is something that brings us great joy without the pressure to perform. And we work and serve expecting God to move in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. So we work and we serve in the context of knowing and experiencing the ever-present love and power of God. Ephesians chapter 3, the benediction, right? I just pray that you'll know the, the, the height, the length, the depth, the breadth, the unknowableness of God's love and that God may dwell in your hearts through faith so that we would all come to unity and experience the fullness of God. That's the prayer and that's the possibility. But we have to be open to the amazing, mind-blowingness of God so that even if we've been following him for 50 years, we'll sit there and go, who is this? Wonderful God. And when we're open to his action Today, we expect transformation in our lives and change and growth and, and we embrace those because God is with us and he'll never leave us or forsake us and he is working all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And there's nothing in this world, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers above, nor powers below. Nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And we just fall in worship at the wonder that God would love us that much. And spiritual formation becomes about deep heart change and relational growth that focuses its affection and transformation through a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Who is this that's in the boat with us? 
in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the chaos, that even the winds and the waves obey him. Let's be open to what God can do. Sometimes we personally shut down our expectations of God's miraculous intervention. And I think the primary cause of that isn't doubt or our theology, it's primarily our pain. We may know of and experience the seeming absence or inaction of God during extremely challenging and painful seasons of life. And it becomes easier to believe in a God who is distant and that his presence isn't going to affect the situation today because the pain of the situation becomes amplified if we hold that God is good and loving and powerfully present in every area of our lives. As if we're honest, we prayed for healing and restoration and reconciliation, but in our hearts, we doubt that God will do anything significant. We don't want to get our hopes up. We've been hurt before and the pain is real and we have vowed to never feel the depth of that pain again. And so we abandon hope and we lose faith in God's present power to act. And if we're brutally honest in his care for us. So we tack on to the end of our prayers, if it be your will, to sound spiritual and resolved, not to presume, but what's really going on in our hearts. You know, the good news in all of this is that Jesus meets us in our doubts and our disbelief and our discouragement. Whether it's in the midst of the storm or on the road to Emmaus or even after 40 days of the resurrected Christ being with his people, standing on the mount before he ascends into heaven, the disciples are gathering around and some worship and some doubt. Jesus says, All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. He may walk with you on that road in the midst of doubt and then break bread with you. And may your eyes be opened. You know, the encouraging thing to me in this is that that, that, that I see in the life of the disciples throughout the Gospels that proximity and experience with Jesus doesn't remove our questions and doubts. And isn't that encouraging? Because when we face deep disappointments in life, Jesus is still there and he's still willing to show us his scarred hands and wounded side. You know, I wonder if we characterize Thomas wrongly. In our culture, you just say doubting Thomas and everybody knows what you're talking about, right? He's like most, one, of, one of the most famous apostles and yet we got one scene with him. <laughs> one scene. But doubting Thomas. I mean, here's a man who followed Jesus from the baptism to the cross. Saw and heard and participated in the transformative ministry of Jesus. Was he just a rational skeptic or was he a man with a wounded hope and dream and he was wrestling with his disappointment with God as to how things worked out? It seems from his ready response that he was desperately wanted to believe that Jesus was alive. 
but he just couldn't bear the painful thought of it not being true. It was easier to say, unless I touch his hands and feet, I, can't, I just can't believe it. It hurts too much if he's still dead. I often wonder if our doubt is not the fruit of our wounded hope. Jesus, notice in Thomas's case, did not condemn Thomas's doubt. Thomas, I'm right here. Get close enough to touch me. Get close enough to touch me. Meet with me and believe. This whole section deals with the miraculous. It's a whole section that if you picked up Thomas Jefferson's Bible would have ended at verse 21. And there would be nothing more until chapter 9. Don't let the miraculous wonder of the power of God scare you away. Keep reading it. Keep meditating on it. Because God is powerful to save. He calms the storm. He releases the demons. He heals an unclean and bleeding woman. And he has the power over the death of a daughter. Who is this that you say you follow? That he commands even the winds and the waters and they obey him. Let's pray. Lord, what a marvelous, marvelous wonder. You spoke and creation came into being. You spoke and the waters were separated in creation and in the exodus. You spoke and things changed. You speak and our lives change. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, cutting between joints and marrows, exposing the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. And therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace and receive help in our time of need. For we have a high priest who knows exactly what we're going through. Oh Lord, may we just stand in awe and wonder of your amazingness, of your sovereign, unending power. You do not change as shifting shadows. Anything is possible for you. So Lord, open our hearts to the God of the possible and the God of the impossible. Because, Lord, we need your power. We need you to be working and speaking and moving in and through our lives and through the life and the ministries of our church so that people would come to you and not to church. That people would come to you and be changed by your glory. Thank you that you're transforming us day after day in your, in your glory and in your truth through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. 
that we're adopted as sons and daughters of the Father through Jesus Christ. And daily you're changing us into the image of your Son. And so, Lord, every one of us is a living, walking miracle as we trust in you and are changed by your glory. Oh, Lord, may we not downplay the reality of your miraculous power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.